You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Well, I'm going to be preaching on Christmas. Now that sounds strange, but it'll make a lot more sense in just a moment. Open your Bibles or watch on the screen or go to your smartphone if you would. Make sure you have the outlines because it's going to be, let me warn you, it's going to be kind of a heavy walk. I want you to fasten your seatbelt. Stay with me. Stay with me to the very end. Uh, if you lose out somewhere along the line, that's okay. When we land the plane, it's going to make sense at the end. But stay right with me on your smartphone if you can uh, on the outline there or what's on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Here we go. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. Here's an imaginary map on the wall right here. Right here. Here's Nazareth way up north. Long journey down to Jerusalem. And then five miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. That's a long trip. That's about, eight, about probably six, seven days of, of walking. So from Bethlehem, the town of David, note it was where David grew up because he belonged to the house or the line. In other words, David was in his ancestry, Joseph's ancestry. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling. The, the technical translation here from the original language, the Greek, is swaddling cloths. So many of your translations have that. This one on the screen does not. But that's the proper word. It's actually swaddling cloths. It's, it has the verb of wrapping in swaddling cloths. And placed him in a manger because there was no room for him at the end. Remember the word manger and inn. We're going to come back and revisit that. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, David was from Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ. In the Greek, that's Christos, means the anointed one. In the Hebrew, that's Meshua, that means Messiah. So the Messiah, the Lord, the anointed one has been born. This will be a sign. Okay, what's the sign? There's evidence here coming. Sign. There's, here's a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth. Key phrase, swaddling cloth. Lying in a, key word, manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. <clears throat> when the angels had left them, gone into the heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that was happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph. How did they find them? Well, we're going to cover that. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the, now it's real critical, the word used the, you think that's not a big deal? It's a big deal here. The manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. I want you to pretend I'm an attorney and you're the jury. I'm an attorney. We're in a courtroom. I'm going to try to make my case to you. I'm going to give you a lot of evidence. So you're the jury and I'm, I'm an attorney and I'm going to try to persuade you. And since this is kind of a techie sermon, I try to think, how can we remember what I'm about to say? So I'm, I want them to bring on the screen seven feasts. When you see seven feasts from the book of, of Leviticus, Leviticus 23, we're going to talk about four texts. We've read the first one, Luke, then Genesis, then Micah, then Micah. There's three words that we're not used to, or we're going to use today. Mishnah, Targum, 
But the key word that I do want you to remember is migdal ader. Some people pronounce it adair. Migdal ader is what we'll call it. And then one powerful truth. If you lose out all the way along, at least I'm going to land you together on one powerful truth, and it'll all make sense to you at the end. Now, to help you remember what I've just said right now, on the screen, I want you, when I say seven feasts, I want you to yell back Leviticus 23. When I say four texts, I want you to say Luke, Genesis, Micah, and Micah. Three terms, I want you to say Mishnah, Targum, Magal Eder, Magal Eder. And then together we'll say one powerful truth. Let's practice. Here we go. Seven feasts. Four texts. Luke, Genesis, Micah, Three terms. And together, one powerful truth. Here we go. I love Christmas. I admit I love Christmas. I, I can't wait for Christmas. If I had my way, Christmas would start on Valentine's and we'd go for 11 months. I just, I just can't wait. I want the tree up already. I'm ready for it right now. And I can't wait for Christmas Day because on TBS, on that network, Turner Broadcasting, they run the Christmas Story movie for 24 solid hours. And Ralphie finally gets his Red Rider range model BB gun. I just can't wait. You'll shoot your eye out. I love all that. Some of you don't. What movie is he talking about? It's my favorite of all. I don't even go to movies. I don't even like movies, but I watch that one for 24 hours once a year. Okay, here we go. So it's Christmas. I, there's a nativity scene we had back on the farm when I grew up. And it was a beautiful nativity scene, but long, long ago lost. But my, my oldest son and my wife knew how much I loved this. They went online and they found one like it. And they bought it. And this is the nativity scene I used to lay in front of as a kid. Just loved it. And now I have one like it. And I put it up. It's, it's, I love it. There's only one problem. That's not what the original nativity scene was like at all. I don't care. I'm still going to put it up when it comes. But was Jesus born on December 25th? Uh, as a matter of fact, no. I don't want to pop anybody's bubble here. But no, as a matter of fact. Now, still on December 25th, I'm going to be looking at this beautiful nativity scene just the same. That's okay. But when was Jesus born? We're not told. When was John the Baptist, his cousin, born? That we do know. His conception occurred probably in what's called a month called Savan. That, that we, and we know it from 1 Chronicles 24 when his father was serving in the temple. The times are given for that. So he was conceived about uh, June 22nd, approximately. So he was born in the month of March. Now, we know that Jesus came six months after that. Jesus was six months younger than his cousin, John the Baptist. That means Jesus' conception would have been, they think around Kislev 25. What would that be? That would be actually December 25th. But when was he born? He was born in the end of September, early October, it is believed in the Feast of Tabernacles. And in a moment, we'll discuss why is that possible? What's the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it occurs once a year. It's in the Jewish calendar. It's in the Old, Old, Old Testament. And it occurred this year. Now, it rotates a little bit because their calendar is a lunar with 11 days left in our calendar, which is solar. But it occurred this year, September 20 through 27th. So you just missed Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, but you missed it. No. <laughs> But you still have something to celebrate. We're going to celebrate. Now, why is this a big deal? Why am well, I talking about a big deal? Leviticus 23 has these seven feasts we talked about. Why are they important to us? Or are they just for a bunch of Jewish people somewhere or a bunch of dead guys who used to celebrate it? They're relevant to us because they give us a chronology of the nature of Jesus and who he is. They have jolting relevance today. Of the seven feasts, the first four have been fulfilled by Jesus. The last three are yet to be fulfilled and frankly could come soon. 
Watch the chart on the screen and take a look at this. This gives you a quick feel of for it. The Passover, the Passover was one of the spring feasts. Now, that was an actual event, a Passover in the Old Testament. We know what that is, uh, when the death angel passed over. But that is symbolized or fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. He died on the cross on Passover from, that had been celebrated all those years. And then the unleavened bread, that's, a, that's fulfilled in Jesus' burial. First fruits is fulfilled in the resurrection. This is a whole sermon, sermon series right here we don't have time to go into. Pentecost was fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. It had been celebrated for, for 1,500 years before the Holy Spirit was given. The fulfillment of it took place, finally, in Acts chapter 2. Now we come to the fall festivals. Three of them, and they have not yet be fulfilled, but they could be coming soon. Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Those are three things that have to do with the life of Jesus. That's why they're relevant to us. It's not just some boring reading from the Old Testament, Leviticus 23. This is a chronology, so we celebrate and look forward to what is about to unfold before us. Now, let me go through them again. Let's just put them on a slide. Leviticus 23, seven feasts, four fulfilled, four not. The Feast of Passover, this is in verses four through eight of Leviticus 23, fulfilled. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's his burial. Verse six, that's fulfilled. The Feast of first fruits. that's verse 10. That's been fulfilled by the resurrection. The Feast of Pentecost, verse 16 of Leviticus 23, fulfilled by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the next one. The Feast of Trumpets, that's when Jesus returns. That's verse 24. That's coming, and it could be soon. And then the Day of Atonement, verse 26 through 32. That's the Day of Judgment. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, 34. That's when he comes and dwells among He tabernacles among us, a thousand-year reign. He tabernacles among us. Now, there are two other feasts I'm not mentioning in this one. Because they came a little later. Esther, Esther was the, in, in a beauty contestant, and she won it, and she became the queen. You remember the story. And, and the Feast of Purim comes out of Esther. There's one more. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap. There's an event that took place that's extremely significant, 165 B.C. You can read about it in First and Second Maccabees. They're not in your Bible, but it's incredible reading. And that feast is celebrated as Hanukkah. Why is, that, why is Hanukkah important? It's not just important to the Jews. Jesus celebrated it. We can too. It's called, and you read in John, it speaks of the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Sometimes other names are given for it. The Feast of Dedication. Jesus participated in that. And it's actually a revelation of Jesus. So celebrating Hanukkah is a very appropriate thing for a, a Jesus follower. But let me go back to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. What's that celebrate? The day that Jesus will come and tabernacle among us, dwell among us, live among us. Now, don't think of them in a solid line. Think of them in a circle. Why? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is when Jesus was born. The Feast of Tabernacles is the celebration of the coming of God incarnate in human flesh. So he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. So we, would, we just celebrated this Tabernacles, September 20 through 27, and that's when Jesus was born. How do we know? Tabernacles, Jesus was called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. Now, I'm going to do a quick review to make sure we're all together. Here, get ready, get ready. Go ahead and bring on the screen the cheat sheet so they can see it. Here we go. Seven feasts. Feast. 
Four texts. Three terms. And one powerful truth. Okay, where in the Bible is the Christmas story recorded? It's in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's in Luke. It's not in John. So it's in Matthew and Luke. Now, the Matthew account is different than the Luke account we just read. Matthew is about the coming of the kings. How many kings were there? There weren't three. We don't know how many there were. We know they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, that was the currency of Egypt where Jesus and his parents were going to go and have to be cared for for two years. So God was providing for them. Now, here we are. In Luke, it's not the, the kings. The kings didn't get there for a couple years. That's later. Now, in my little nativity scene, they're all there together. And I like it that way. So that's the way I'm going to keep it. But that isn't the way it really happened. The kings got there a lot later. Now, who got there that night? The shepherds. Who, cares the, who tells the account of the shepherds? It's Luke. Luke is the one. How were shepherds seen? They were a lowly profession. I moved here 25 years ago to San Diego from Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. And in Texas, a big song is, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. Well, in Bethlehem, the hit song was, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Shepherds. It was not a good thing. Unless you were one of these shepherds. These shepherds were different. The ones to whom the angels appeared were not normal shepherds. They weren't caring for normal sheep. Why do I say that? The Jewish tradition has two writings, Mishnah and Targum, the the Targums. We just talked about it. And they reveal that at the Migdal Eder, and that's a word I do want you to remember, Migdal Eder, that's Hebrew for tower or watchtower of the flock. Migdal, tower or watchtower. Adar, or Adair, of the flock. So the watchtower of the flock, it's revealed in the writings called Mishnah and Targum. If you're following on your outline, your smartphone, it'd be a lot easier for you. That reveals the location. Hey, we're going to do another review. Get ready. Here we go. Here we go. Bring up the cheat sheet to help them out here. Seven feasts. Four texts. Three terms. And together, one profound truth. Okay, we've covered one text, Luke. We're going for the second one now, Genesis 23. Here's what Genesis 23 says. So Rachel died. Who was Rachel? Wife of Jacob. He had two wives and two handmaids, effectively four wives. His favorite one died. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel, now Israel's another name for Jacob. Uh, I got to get a side story about Jacob and Israel's name being changed. My, 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 my first wife died of cancer in not eight years ago, went through a deep valley of grief, came out of that, met Rosemary. On our first date, we've been married now for seven years. On our first date, I knew she'd been, she'd been to Israel 71 times. I thought, can she love any, anybody besides Israel? Is there any way I'm going to have any chance on this one? And so on her first date, she turned to me and says, your name is Jim, which means your legal name is James. I said, that's correct. She says, if James is your legal name, that's the Greek name for the Hebrew name, Jacob or Yaakov. I said, yes, that's correct. She says, Jacob changed his name to Israel, so I'm going to call you Israel. I said, this is going to happen. This is going to work. Whoa. I'm on my way. True story. True story. So it says, verse 21, Israel, that's Jacob. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond. The word beyond means from or, or effectively at. He pitched his tent at Migdal Eder. What's Migdal Eder? That's the watchtower of the flock. Now, we've established where Migdal Eder is. It's by Bethlehem. 
Now let's find out from Micah where Jesus was born. Micah 5.2. Who was Micah? He was a prophet. He wrote one of the minor prophets. We don't call it minor prophets because it's minor. It's not. It's called minor because it's just a short book. Very important prophecy. Micah lived 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He knew this area. Uh, about from five miles south of Jerusalem is where Bethlehem's located. So Micah knows the area. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, but where in Bethlehem? How are we going to know where? Micah 4, 8. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, what he's saying is, are, as for you, Migdal Ader. This is the Hebrew for, for tower of the flock. A stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion, kind of a former rule, will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, something that used to happen there that was a big deal is going to happen again. It's going to even be bigger because it's from before all the ages. It's telling us that Jesus is going to be born there. Now, what's the former dominion? What's that talking about? He's writing this roughly 750 years before Christ. Let me, let me give you a, a quick wild history of Israel. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to go quick. Start with a man named Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then Joseph. We went from a, a man to a family, to a tribe, to a confederation of tribes. <clears throat> they finally get into the promised land with Joseph. At that time, they have their political rulers are judges. That's the book of Judges. They go through about a dozen judges. They say, we want a king. They got King Saul. He ruled 40 years. Then they got King David. Remember that one. Then they got King Solomon. Then they split, and they, they went into a civil war with each other, north versus south. The thing split. They tore each other up. They weakened each other so much that in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come from the north, take the ten northern tribes away. We never hear from them again until, mind you, just the recent years, just last few years, through ethnography and DNA testing, they're finding out where those people are scattered. This is a huge breakthrough in prophecy. All the Jews are going to be brought back to Israel. They're, fi they're finding those ten tribes. This has all happened in the last few years. And then we go to 522 B.C., 586 B.C., and, and that's the Babylon comes in, and the southern two tribes, the southern kingdom, that includes Jerusalem, wipe them out, haul them off. They're in captivity for 70 years. Then they come back, but when they get back, they're still under Babylon. Then they're under Persia. Then after that, they're under the Greeks. Then after that, they're under the Romans. Now we're the time of Jesus. After that, the Byzantine Empire. After that, the Arab Muslims control it. Then come the Crusaders. After that comes the Mamluk, the Muslims from Egypt. Then after that, the Ottoman Turks for 400 years from 1517 to 1917. Then 1917, World War I, the British take control. They control until 1948. In 1948, miraculously, God had said, Israel is going to be a nation again. People mocked at that because 2,500 years they did not have their own authority, their own sovereignty. 2,500 years, God was mocked. There'll never be another Israel. In fact, let's replace it. Let's call the church the new Israel. No, God said he was going to put the nation of Israel back together, and he pulled it off March and May the 14th, 1948. The state of Israel became a nation once again. 
unheard of. A language that had disappeared came back into existence. Their coinage system, everything came back into system exactly as God prophesied. When I was first there, there were only 2 million people. There are 9 million people, Jews coming from all over the world. My wife's involved helping Jews come back in from all over the world to fulfill the great, commit, the great calling that God put on that special country. Now, now, in that history, I just walked through it. In that history, in that history, the, the zenith, the peak, the most glorious moments was the rule of David, King David. It was remarkable. Just to give you an example, when God promised the land to Israel from the uh, Euphrates River up in what's Iraq and down to the Nile River in Egypt, that's around 300,000 square miles. Under David's rulership, it expanded so much, it got all the way to about approximately we don't know exactly, but approximately 200,000 square miles. Now, how big is Israel right now? It's not 300,000 square miles. It's not 200,000. It's 8,130. It's a tiny piece of what it used to be. So God's got some interesting fulfillment he's going to pull off. What if we had time to park right there? We won't stop there. Except to say the zenith was the King David. Everything, when you go to Israel, everything's about David. King David this, the harp of David, the bridge of David, the rule of David, the reign of David, the time of David, the songs of David, the worship of David. Everything's David. You can go to the McDonald's in Jerusalem and order a McDavid burger. <laughs> Everything is about David. There's no McSaul burgers. There's no McSolomon burgers. David, why? So that's what this is talking about. Micah 4.8 says, a former dominion. This was a big deal. David, it's going to be restored through a king who is coming, who's going to be over everything. So now we've got Genesis telling us where Migdal Ader is, the watchtower of the flocks. We've got Micah saying, hey, it's Bethlehem. We've got Micah saying, let me tell you where it's going to be. It's going to be at the Migdal Ader. And now we're going to jump to two terms, the term Mishnah and Targum, the Targums. What's that? Mishnah is the first writing of what had been the oral tradition. In Eastern culture, they repeated things over and over with great accuracy. In fact, Mishnah means repetition. And so in the Mishnah, it was finally written down what had been passed down of the rabbinic teaching of Judaism. It, next to the scripture, the Mishnah is the basic textbook of Jewish life and thought. And from one of the books, Shekelim, chapter 7, verse 4, we find information about the Migdal Eder. Now, also from the Targum. What's the Targum? Remember I said they were hauled away into captivity for 70 years? There was an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew text. That's called the Targum. And in there, we have insights. It's not the Bible. We know that. But it's historically accurate information that sheds light on Scripture. There's one more guy I want you to meet. One more person. Jerome. He lived in the 300s. Your Bible finishes up at about 95 AD with Revelation. Let's just round it off. 100 AD. So he was within 200 years of the closing of the New Testament period. Jerome, he's a Bible translator. He ends up in Bethlehem. He translates the Bible into Latin. He's a controversialist. You know what that means? He's a guy who likes to make people angry by arguing. He was a irascible character. See, take a little picture at him. Does he look very happy? This is, this is Jerome. And, and he, he was a difficult person, but he did translate the Bible, and he taught us some important things. He said the Migdal Eder is about almost a mile north of Bethlehem, the outskirts of Bethlehem, It'd be four miles from there to the Temple Mount, where the temple is in Jerusalem. So he gave us the location of the Migdal Eder. Now, who were these shepherds that the angels talked to? And how did they know where to go? Well, I'm gonna, we're going to repeat here a bit. Genesis 35, 19, Jacob's wife, Rachel, in hard labor, she gave birth to Benjamin. She died, and she was buried there at Bethlehem. 
After bearing her, he moved his flocks to the Migdal Ader. We just read that in Genesis 35. Now, let me give you a little bit of background that's going to be frosting on the cake. Fasten your seatbelt. Five chapters before that, Genesis 30, Jacob is still up way up north in the, what's called the Levant or Mesopotamia with his father-in-law, dispute, he and Laban. And they settle it by resolving some issue regarding some sheep. And Jacob was to take the spotted sheep. You remember that from Genesis chapter 30. So these are the sheep, the spotted sheep from his father-in-law that he's bringing here to the Migdal Ader. Park that in your brain because at the very end, I'm going to come back and tie those two together. Now, in the ancient times, they had these military towers they were to protect. But this one in Bethlehem, this particular one, bring a picture of so you can see what the tower was like. The Migdal Ader, this is what it would look like. Mignolator, this one was not an ordinary tower. This was to watch over the flocks right around Bethlehem, close on the road, on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishva, the Mishnah we just talked about, the flock said the flocks pastured there were the flocks who were destined for temple sacrifices. The Mishnah site identifies identifies the Migdal Eder as this blows. But so does the Targums. Remember the Targums? That's the Aramaic translation that was done during the time when they were called away 70 years to Babylon. It has a paraphrase of Genesis 35, 23. And listen what it says. He spread, this is a paraphrase. He spread his tent, Jacob. He spread his tent beyond Migdal Eder. Now that sounds exactly like the original, but this is what they had in. The place where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. This was the teaching right during that time frame, right after your Bible is being written. Now, I'm an attorney. I'm in front of the jury, and I'm trying to give you evidence. Here's circumstantial evidence. The angels gave a clue to the shepherds. They told the shepherds where they could find the babe, and the clue was swaddling clothes and a manger. Now, how is that a clue? Why didn't they tell more? Bethlehem was bigger in Bible times than it is now. What are they going to do? Knock on doors, go to house to house and try to find, you guys have a manger? Do you have any swaddling clothes? No. Why did they not give more, more information? Because these shepherds were an erudite, sophisticated, highly trained, probably Levites, who knew exactly what the word swaddling cloths meant. These shepherds raised sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed in the temple. They birthed them tenderly at the Migdal Ader, the watchtower of the flocks. They guarded them, and they raised them to be the sacrificial animals taken four miles north to the temple to be sacrificed for the sins. Those, these were highly trained, sophisticated shepherds. They were educated in exactly what an animal might be like that would be sacrificed. It had to be unblemished, not hurt, not damaged in any way. They knew what a perfect sacrifice was. So the lambs at, at, at birthing, these lambs at birthing, were immediately wrapped in swaddling cloths to protect them from injury. And now these same specialized shepherds had a visitation from angels and say, go find what's just been born and wrapped in swaddling cloths. They knew where that was, the Migdal Ader. And they were about to see the wrapped lamb of God. These men who knew what a perfect lamb looked, yeah, you can clap for the Lord on that one. These men who knew what a perfect lamb is going to look like are now invited to inspect baby Yeshua, the perfect lamb of God. When the angelic announcement came, 
They knew exactly where to go. The reference to swaddling clothes could only mean one thing, the tower of the flock, the migdal Ader, because their job was to find the perfect lambs, unblemished, unharmed, protected, that would be raised for the purpose of dying for the sins, wrapped in swaddling cloths. They knew where to go. Why is this the perfect place for Christ to be born? It's so obvious. This birthing place for sacrificial lambs that were offered in the temple, that is the tower of the flock, that is where Jesus was born because he would become the perfect lamb who would die for your sins. There's another clue. That's the word manger. Remember, I'm an attorney before my jury, and I'm trying to make the case here. Another clue, and that's the word manger. Jesus was not born behind some inn. He wasn't born in a smelly stable. That's our imagery. The word inn in the Greek language there should be translated guest room. Many of you have enough bedrooms in your house. You have a room you call a guest room. It's used when you have guests. That's what the word is actually translated. It wasn't Jesus didn't make it into Motel 6 and went to the barn. That's not the way the story actually goes in reality. The guest rooms, the homes were occupied as all the descendants of David had to come back to the city of David, Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, Beit house, Lehem, bread, the house of bread, where the one would be born who would call himself the bread of life. This city of David, this is the manger. He's getting excited again, so I'm moving over here. <laughs> so here we are. Remember what John the Baptist called Jesus. John the Baptist said, Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I'm gonna lay, that's going to be my final point. So I'm giving you an early clue to what that final point is. Peter called him. He was the lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how he described Jesus. Paul called him our, our Christ at sacri- our, our Passover sacrifice. John called him the lamb in the book of Revelation. Jesus is called the sacrificial lamb. It's not by chance that Jesus died on the cross at the Passover, one of those seven feasts we talked about. He fulfilled them, and he's fulfilled four of them, and we have three more to go, which I think may be coming soon. Now, there's one more thing. The Greek word for, in our English Bibles, for manger, it's the word fatne. It gets translated differently other places. It's not translated manger. Uh, to, it's more translated stall. When we think of the word manger, now, I, I grew up on a farm. Uh, my sister's here. My brother-in-law's here. My mom's here. We grew up on a farm in Kansas, north central Kansas. And on that farm in Kansas, we raised Hereford cattle and Yorkshire and Hampshire hogs. Now, nobody in here has a clue what I just said other than my mother, <laughs> nor do you care. But I know what a manger is. I, I'm picturing a part of the old barn where, where, where we would feed the cattle, and we called that a manger. And before that, my, my father and grandfather, when they, they, they would have the, have the horses in there as, as well. So I know what a manger is, but this is not the, the correct understanding of the word. The correct understanding is stall. It, it could have been a stall where animals were kept. It's translated that way in Luke chapter 13, verse 15. And over in Proverbs, it's actually translated as a stall or a crib. So picture a birthing stall. Now in Luke 2, 16, I said, watch for the word the manger. In Luke 2, 16, the shepherds went to Joseph and Mary to not a manger, but it's the definite article, the 
manger. They knew they were going for the birthing stall. Swaddling clothes were there in the Migdal Ader. They went to the birthing stall. Now, I'm still an attorney, and you're a jury, and I'm bringing forth this evidence. I'm trying to give you evidence of, of all I'm making here. The actual location of Jesus' birth is quite likely right here where the Passover lambs were born. And he was the first Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world. Hey. <laughs> I, I'm so motivated. I'm going to take an offering again. This, is <laughs> this explains how the shepherds knew where to go. They didn't have to be told. When they heard swaddling clothes and not manger, but a birthing stall, they knew that's their territory. We better get back to the Migdal Eder, our tower, and see what's going on there. These shepherds had a specific holy calling to certify Passover lambs upon their birth because they would be the ones to die for the sins in Jerusalem. And what about the swaddling clothes? Where do they come from? Well, when a priest would go into the temple, they would be assigned two weeks a year on rotation. This is the 24 rotation. This is found in 1 Chronicles 24. They would go into worship and they worship and minister unto the Lord for one solid week. They'd be assigned a couple times a year. They'd go in. When they would come out from that week, they would take their garments, their priestly garments, they'd be shredded, and those would become the swaddling cloths. Now, where did Mary get the swaddling cloths? We don't know. But here's what a theory, and I'm an attorney and you're my jury, so here's circumstantial evidence for you to chew on. Where did Mary go when she was pregnant? Mary went immediately to, from Nazareth down to Ein Karim. Here's Nazareth way up here. Here's a long walk down to Jerusalem. We're talking about close, could be a week to walk down to Jerusalem if you're covering 20 miles a day. And then you go on five miles west of that, and there's Ein Karim. Why'd she go to Ein Karim? That's the home of her cousin, Elizabeth. So as soon as she got word that she had conceived, she went, and that's a very difficult journey. It's 100 miles. It'd be like walking from here to downtown Los Angeles. That's 100 miles. It'd be altitude incline. You'd be climbing up to. It'd be like walking from here to Alpine in terms of the differential in, in altitude. And it would be a, not a safe situation. Joseph, presumably, and others maybe in an entourage with her. Why did she go down there? She went to be with her cousin Elizabeth. Who was the husband of Elizabeth? Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? He was a priest. What had he just been doing according to the biblical text? He had been on his assignment in the, the temple with his priestly garments would have come out. And it could be that his wife Elizabeth would tear them up and make them prepared to become the swaddling cloths for the baby that would be born to Mary. So, as an attorney before the jury, some concluding arguments. Micah 5.2 is indisputable. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Genesis 25 tells us where the Migdal Ader, the tower of the flock, is located in Bethlehem, the outskirts of Bethlehem. We know from Micah 4.8, a kingship, a bigger deal than the former dominion, a kingship, bigger than David. Here comes Jesus, who's in that line, lineage, but it's going to be a bigger kingship. And, and, and way to find him? swaddling claws, and in a birthing stall. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this plane right now, but I'm first going to give you some frosting on the cake again. Remember why it went, took you over to Genesis 30? Jacob was with Laban. They had a dispute. They split up. Jacob took the spotted sheep, and he headed away. Where did he come? 
he came to the Migdal Ader. Where were the spotted sheep at that point? At the tower of the flock, the Migdal Ader. Now, the Bible says in prophecy that not only will Israel be established as a nation, not only will the Jews come back to Israel. Remember I said it was only 2 million when I went there the first time. It's now 9 million strong and growing. Jews are coming from all over the world. There's only about 15 million known Jews. There's probably many more that we don't know. 15 million, about 6, 7, 8 million of them are there, and others are coming back continually. That's prophecy being fulfilled right before your eyes. We could take you up into Samaria and show you Jeremiah 31 being fulfilled right this very day. Let me take you to Judea, to the Migdal Ader, and look what's happening there today. Her name is Jenna Lewinsky, a young woman in Canada. She's She's Jewish. She, she discovers the reality of the spotted sheep. The spotted sheep were, the animals were dispersed when the Jews were dispersed. They went all over the world and they discover these spotted sheep in Canada. And she starts thinking, could they be descendants of Jacob from the Levant or Mesopotamia? And sure enough, they do genotype testing or DNA testing on them. And these are descendants from that area and that time frame. these spotted sheep. She says, they should be back in Israel. So she starts buying them up and buying up all across Canada and taking them and hauled them back to Israel. Very costly. She had no money. She had to trust God. She's not, she's not a follower of Yeshua. She's a Jewish woman who radically trusts Yahweh to provide for her miraculously and, and it's probably cost, I don't know the exact numbers. I would think we're probably approaching a half million dollars it's cost her so far. She got them there. It has been a disaster after disaster, plagues, floods, attacks by animals, disease. Things have come upon her. She's been attacked by uh, Muslim Arabs in her community, being threatened. Her home has been blown. She lived in a tent forever. She had no place to live. She couldn't get permits. She has had uh, incredibly difficult I don't know how many years it has been, 10 years maybe on this journey, approximately. It has been unbelievably painful. One time they were going to arrest her because where she had her sheep, she had about, at that time, maybe close to 100 sheep, and she was trying to feed them, take care of them. They were going to arrest her. She said, oh, please arrest me. I've had no nice bed to sleep on and no warm food for so long. Please arrest me. Please take me in. And, and, and so look on the screen right now. Here's a picture of Jenna, upper left. Here she is at, with her spotted sheep. There, and look where she's located. Migdal Ader. This, the scripture says, that along with the Jews coming back, the animals actually come back to Israel. That's what you're witnessing right here before your eyes. Now, I want, I'm going to land this plane, and I want you to land with me here. If you've not followed anything, here's what you've got to follow right now. Here's the application for us all. Jesus took your sins. He is the perfect lamb. He didn't have to die for his sins. If he had imperfections, he'd have to die for himself. But he has no sins. So he's dying for your sins. You were born to live. He was born to die. Now, he had a calling on his life to live for a while. But he was born. He's the only person who was ever born for the purpose of dying for your sin. I want you to think for a moment and do something I would never tell a crowd to do except on this kind of occasion. I want you to think. Ordinarily, I tell people, don't think of your past junk and sins. Don't think of them. But this moment, I want you to think of the worst things you have ever done, said, and thought. I want you to think about them right now. That's 
why he came. That's the message of the angels to the shepherds. Say, get over to the Migdal Eder, swaddling claws. The perfect, the perfect lamb of God has been born. You've been checking out all these little lambs, and that's good. But now here's the perfect lamb who, when he goes to the cross, he's taking care of everything, all the sins. Think of the worst things you've ever done, said, or thought right now for just a moment because that's why he came, and that's why Christmas is relevant 365 days a year. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, what's that? That's uh, sex outside of marriage, nor idol- among single people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's sex among, uh, outside of marriage among married people, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, revelers, nor extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God. But then, that's the bad news, but here's the good news. And such were some of you. In other words, all these categories, you can be changed. When you hear people say, oh, I can't change. Really? Well, if you're a fornicator, you can, because such were some of you. Idolater, adulterer, homosexual, sodomite, thief, covetous, drunkards. You can be changed. Such were some of you, but but you were washed. Wow. In, In the Old Testament, your sins are covered. In the New Testament, the sins are gone. What's the difference? The blood of Jesus. They're gone. They're gone. They're literally gone. All that stuff you thought of is gone. It's just gone. It's not here anymore. God doesn't even remember. He doesn't remember that. It's gone. Look what he goes on to say. You were washed, but you were sanctified. What's sanctification? What does that mean? That means you're taken and set apart for something very special. What's your first name? What? Paul. Okay. The apostle. Okay, here we go. Uh, Paul. To be sanctified, Paul was set apart, and Paul was declared by God holy. Holy. That's what sanctification means. You are declared holy. You are righteous. That's what he looks at you as one who is in Christ. So you were sanctified, set apart, declared to be holy, righteous. Remember why he was here and I talked about the covenant? Remember the blood covenant? Big swap. We swapped perfections or sins. He took on my sinfulness. I took on his righteousness. His, his, his perfection comes on me. My imperfections go on him. That's the great swap. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. That means just as if I'd never done it. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name, that's covenant language. In the name, in somebody else's name. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Let me tell you, you were made for two things, and you're not experiencing either one of them. Perfection and permanence. You're not experiencing either one. You know how unperf- imperfect you are? You're, you were made. Your, your spirit was made for perfection and permanence, and you're not experiencing it. Our bodies, we, we, we try to keep in shape, and we try to keep the right weight, and we, 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 the women fix their hair and put on the makeup. It's not because they're vain. It's because we were made for perfection, and we're trying to live up to that. That's a, that's a noble thing. It's not a bad thing, but we're not really experiencing it. We're, our, in fact, if you're beyond the age of about 24, your body is... Okay, you get the picture. That's not cool. We don't like that. We're made for permanence. We're made for perfection. And God says, I know you're not achieving it here. So I'm going to step in and take your place. And because of what I'm going to do, my perfection is assigned to you. And through my resurrection, permanence is coming through you. Your spirits are going to last forever. That's the message this morning. 
But you got to receive him. You got to repent and receive him. And you got to do it now. Why? He came the first time as a lamb. The next time he's coming like a lion. He's a king. Revelation, Revelation 19, 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. Here's my wrap up two points. Number one, Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice. Perfect lamb. No sin. Did you know in surveys across America, 46% of Americans think that Jesus sinned? Man, if that was the case, he'd be dying for his sins. He couldn't die for yours. His perfection is what makes it possible for him to die for somebody else's sins. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. No sin. He takes all my sin, failures, shortcomings, imperfections. So I do not have to suffer the eternal consequences of them. Repent and receive him. Number two, do it now. Because Jesus came the first time as a lamb, as a servant. Next time he comes as a lion, a king, one with fire in his arms. You got to get ready for him. He's coming soon. I don't know when. I don't know how soon. I don't know, but man, I want to be ready now. There's too much happening. It could happen soon. Now's your time to receive him as Savior and Lord. Stand to your feet quietly, reverently. Stand to your feet right now. All eyes closed. All eyes closed. Stand to your feet. For somebody here right now, a bunch of you, this is your time to receive Jesus. I don't want to leave San Marcos campus with somebody not prepared to receive him. I don't want to, I don't want to find out someday that somebody was here in the audience and I did not give an opportunity for you to get things squared away with Almighty God. This is your time. If you do not know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you do not know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are prepared to meet him, if you do not know that absolutely prepared to meet him, then right now pray this prayer with me. We're going to say in a moment, dear Jesus, I need you. Come as Savior and Lord of my life. I ask for forgiveness. I repent of my sin. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. If that describes the desire of your heart, all eyes closed, heads bowed. I want you to pray this out loud together, but it's especially for those of you praying to receive Christ right now. Follow me one phrase at a time. Dear Jesus, I need you as Savior Lord. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I repent of my sin. I need you now as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. No one looking around, all eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer for the purpose of receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, raise your hand and kind of wave it so I can see it. Raise your hand real high. Okay, everybody, I've seen a lot of hands. Raise your hand. Okay, everybody with a hand raised, look at me. The rest of you keep your eyes closed. With your hand raised, quite a few of you, look at me. This is the most important decision you could ever make. If you don't remember anything else I said today, just remember this moment. You need Jesus, and the decision made to invite him into your heart is the most important decision. If you raise your hand, I want the privilege of just praying over you real quickly. I'm way over time. Come quickly right now. Come down right now. Just join me right down here. Come quickly. Come quickly. Come quickly. Come quickly. I want to pray over you. If you raise your hand, come on. Come on. Don't wait. Come on. Raise your hand. Come on. I want to pray over you right here. Oh, wait. Time to come. We'll, we'll wait for you. You're clear up there. We'll wait. We'll wait. Come on. There's still some more. Come on. Yeah, I see you. Come on. Great. Come on. Any others? Come quickly. Over here. Another one coming. Coming over here. Great. Come on. Great. Wonderful. 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 in their lives. I cannot imagine the kind of difference it's going to make from this day on with you. I can't imagine what all, he, he's got it all figured out, but it just excites me. What could, how old are you? You got all these years left to serve him. 
what God's going to do with you. That's incredible. Lord, God, you see this. These who today heard the story of the Migdal Ader, and when you came to earth, you came to earth to die for their sins. So they don't have the eternal consequences of all the junk in our past. And I pray the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon them that as they walk forward, they walk forward with a sense of mission and calling, the commissioning of the Spirit of the living God in their lives. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.